This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. So, uh, uh, greetings. I'm Henry Jenkins, uh, the director of the Comparative Media Studies Program, which I'm saying as much for people who may listen to this podcast later as for people in this room, since most I know most of you in this room. Uh, it's my privilege to introduce you tonight to uh, to Wu Ming Wan, number one, uh, who is our is our guest from Italy. That I should. So, so about a year and a half ago, I got a piece of email uh, from someone named Wu Ming Wan. And given that my username is Henry Three, it didn't seem that unusual to me that there was a combination of a name and a number. Uh, and we, we started a really interesting correspondence that he'd stumbled onto convergence culture and sort of responded to some of what was there and in return introduced me to some of the amazing work that he and his co colleagues have been doing uh, in Italian popular culture in Italian media culture over the, for a long period of time. So I started reading about the Luther Blissert movement. I started reading about the novels that have come out of the Wu Ming group. I started hearing about the media pranks that they were involved with. And really, ha and out of that grew an interview in my blog, uh, which, and then from that, uh, they were nice enough to write an introduction to the Italian translation of Convergence Culture, which, among other things, introduced the work we do here at MIT on new media literacies to an Italian audience. And I'm very grateful for his role of opening up the Italian community to some of the ideas that we explore here at MIT. And so it's a great delight to have him here to share some of his work and to talk about his perspective on contemporary popular culture. I've come to see him as a kindred spirit and as someone who's exploring parallel paths to the stuff that we do here. So I think it's great to have him here at MIT to talk to you about uh, his work. So let me turn it over to him. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, when I greet uh, an audience uh, that way, uh, and I've been doing it uh, f uh, for the past uh, uh, eight days uh, during this North American trip, I was uh, in uh, Quebec and then I was in Vermont, and each time I do it, uh, uh, this reminds me of Steve Martin at the Saturday Night Live. No, it's good to be here. No, it's good to be here. I don't know if <laughs> the people listening to the podcast uh, won't understand. I, 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 so I, I explain. I, <laughs> I moved slightly to the side. Okay. <laughs> and, and I changed the place. And I, um, Steve Martin comes to my mind quite often in, in these days because uh, there was a, a piece in uh, one of his old stand-up shows where he uh, played um, a few notes on his banjo, then stopped and said, uh, this is a song I wrote for, for Crosby, Stills and Nash. Uh, it will be included in their next album because I'm friends with them, and especially with one of them, Crosby Steels. Uh, which, because it's difficult to explain, it's difficult to explain the relationship between group and, and individual, no? uh, because we have th these strange names, you know, Wuming is a group, then there's Wuming 1, Wuming 2, Wuming 3, Wuming 4, and Wuming 5. And some people assume that I'm the boss, that I'm the leader of the group because I'm Wuming 1, uh, but uh, 
the, the numbers are chosen following the alphabetical order of our last names. So my name starts with B, uh, I'm the first one in alphabetical order, and I'm wooming one. Uh, why do we have this uh, bizarre uh, nom de plume? Uh, why not use our real names? Because uh, we wanted to convey the sense that even the stuff that we produce individually, and we do it because uh, we don't write uh, only um, collective novels, but also solo novels. For example, I wrote a novel called The New Thing. I, I did it all alone, and I felt lonely while doing it, and it was published in, in Italy in 2004, and now it's being translated uh, in several countries. Uh, but even the stuff that we uh, produce individually uh, has a, a constant reference uh, to the work of the whole group. We are kind of a laboratory, and even uh, the texts uh, or uh, the, 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 the pieces of work uh, the, that we do, everything uh, is uh, attributed to the, to the group. Then there's the number uh, explaining in detailed way uh, uh, exactly who did what, but uh, the whole group takes a responsibility for it. We started, as uh, Henry mentioned, as the Luther Blissett project. Luther Blissett was a uh, multi-use name, a collective uh, pseudonym that uh, anybody could adopt. Uh, and it was adopted by hundreds of people in Italy during the 90s. Uh, basically, the project was that of uh, uh, creating a kind of folk hero, like in ancient ballads, like a Robin Hood of the contemporary age. Uh, but uh, this uh, uh, folk hero, uh, had, had an open reputation, a reputation that anybody could improve by using his name uh, as a signature uh, in order to claim responsibility for media hoaxes, for example. Uh, several pranks were played on the media during the 90s in Italy and other European countries and even in some South American countries under the collective name Luther Blissett, or use the name uh, as a signature for theoretical radical texts uh, or uh, uh, performance art, uh, street theater, uh, and uh, all, all kinds of stuff, actually. Um, that project lasted five years. Uh, it started in 1994 and ended at the, the end of 1999 uh, on New Year's Day, actually, uh, because all the veterans of, uh, of the network, uh, all the people who'd been using uh, the name uh, uh, in, the, in, in those five years uh, committed kind of a ritual suicide, which we called with the Japanese name the seppuku. Uh, after, after the end of the Luther Blissett project, some of uh, those groups uh, started uh, new projects uh, on their own, and one of those projects was Wuming. Uh, but basically, uh, our, um, when, we, when we were active uh, as the Bolognese group, the Bologna-based group of the Luther Blissett Project, in 1995 we decided to write a novel together. Uh, not all together because we were more than 50 people, but uh, four of us decided to work all together uh, on a novel 
a project of a novel, uh, which later became our debut novel called uh, Q, which was published in 1999, and it was published in 2004 in the US. Uh, it was our last contribution to the Luther Blissett uh, uh, project. Uh, it is a, a complex historical novel set uh, uh, in a Central Europe and Northern Italy uh, in the 16th century. It deals uh, with uh, peasant uh, rebellion and uh, uh, rioting, constant religious rioting uh, in, uh, in Germany uh, a few years after the, um, the Reformation. Uh, and uh, it was in, interpreted as an allegory of basically everything. Uh, it was uh, interpreted as an allegory of uh, the, the the uh, social conflict uh, started in 1968 uh, all over Europe. It was uh, interpreted uh, as an allegory of the uh, birth and the generation of the communist movement. It was uh, uh, interpreted as an allegory of basically everything, as, uh, as I said before. Um, after Q, when we regrouped as Wu Ming, we chose this name, this Chinese name, because it's a pun. It means uh, no name, Wu Ming, the second uh, tone of the, of the Mandarin Chinese language, the rising tone, Wu Ming, it means anonymous. It's the way Chinese dissidents uh, sign their clandestine tracts, uh, their uh, critical texts, uh, in order not to be uh, persecuted by the regime, not, uh, not to suffer repression. And, and the, other meaning, the other meaning is five names. If you, if you pronounce the first syllable using the third tone of the Mandarin Chinese language, which, is, uh, which descends and then ascends again, Wu Ming means five names, and we are five people. So we are anonymous in a way uh, because we uh, reject the cult, the cult of the author as a star, as a celebrity, but we have names, we have five names. Uh, our, our real names are not secret. Uh, my name is Roberto Bui, uh, but uh, they, they are not relevant. We think they are not significant, they are not important, and, and we use our nom de plume, uh, the name of the group plus the number. Uh, after uh, after uh, Q, we wrote uh, several uh, other novels, uh, one of which is uh, 54. Uh, it was published also in the US by Harcourt. And uh, I'm going to read a few lines uh, from uh, that book uh, later on. Uh, first, uh, I, I, I want to explain what it's about because it's quite complex. It is set uh, in the year of the title, in 1954, and uh, there's more than 100 characters. Uh, it's uh, extremely complex uh, from a narrative point of view. Uh, one of the characters is Cary Grant, as you can see in the front cover, uh, and uh, Cary Grant uh, is depicted while uh, going to uh, Yugoslavia on a secret mission on the behalf of the MI6, the Intelligence Secret Service of the United Kingdom. Um, it's uh, basically a Cold War ploy. Uh, the MI6 uh, uh, want uh, Cary Grant to convince Tito to take part in a cinematic project to be involved in the production of a movie, 
uh, a, a biopic on uh, his own role during the resistance uh, uh, against the Nazi occupation of uh, Yugoslavia. Why do they choose Cary Grant? Because he's the most elegant man in the world, and Tito is the second most elegant man in the world. So they can meet up and uh, chat about clothes. Basically, and, and this is this is one of the subplots. There are many more subplots. Uh, it is said from the it, it lasts from uh, the beginning of 1954 to the end of the year, and um, it is opened by a kind of a poem, uh, very short actually, uh, which I'm going to read. Uh, Henry asked me to do a reading, but I told him that I was ashamed of my thick Italian accent. But these are only. Uh, 15 lines, so uh, I'll do it. Uh, I overcome shame. Uh, Post-war means nothing. What fools called peace simply meant moving away from the front. Fools defended peace by supporting the armed wing of money. Beyond the next dune, the clashes continued. The fangs of chimerical beasts sinking into flesh, the heavens full of steel and smoke, whole cultures uprooted from the earth. Fools fought the enemies of today by bankrolling those of tomorrow. Fools swelled their chests, talked of freedom, democracy, our country, as they devoured the fruits of riots and looting. They were defending civilization against the Chinese shadows of dinosaurs. They were defending uh, the planet against fake images of asteroids. They were defending the Chinese shadow of a civilization. They were defending the fake image of a planet. Um, in the afternoon, it, it was morning in the US, but it was afternoon in Italy. In the afternoon of September the 11th, 2001, we were working over the very last, on the very last chapters of this book, of 54. We were uh, all together in our office, which is actually a room in my house, and uh, we were talking about uh, the content of these chapters, because it, it's the final roller coaster ride uh, of the novel, when we received a text message on all our cell phones, with a few words, it was from a friend, a friend of ours. It was, turn on the TV, and of course, uh, we switched the TV set on, and there was the scene of the Twin Towers attacked by the, the airplanes and, and, and all the stuff that we all know very well. Uh, in the following days and weeks, we wrote uh, those last chapters and the acknowledgments of the novel, and then decided to write this uh, kind of little poem um, as a prologue uh, of the novel, which tells uh, uh, the events of uh, the past few decades after the Second World War uh, onwards uh, in an allegorical way. Um, what was happening? It was uh, after the fall of the USSR uh, and the first war on Iraq, uh, many people here in the West, both in America and Europe, especially opinion leaders, uh, thought uh, that a new world order was ahead. Uh, the Cold War was over. 
democracy had won. Uh, some scholars uh, even talked about uh, uh, the end of history. Uh, it was uh, part uh, propaganda, part uh, collective hallucination, but most of all it was uh, a delusion of grandeur on part uh, of the West uh, and its powers that be. Uh, art, uh, literature and popular culture were hot on the heels of this delusion or maybe resignation. Um, there could be nothing really new under the sun. Uh, many artists believed that all they could do was basking in the light of what had already been done, uh, hence uh, endless uh, citations, uh, parodies, pastiche, remakes, ironic uh, revivals, detachment, cynicism, uh, skepticism, and cheap uh, postmodernism. Uh, the events of uh, September the 11th, uh, the 11th uh, shattered all those glass figurines, uh, and, uh, and they did it uh, in a very noisy way, uh, in a very spectacular way, but a large number of people is starting to feel that backlash only now, uh, several years later. And that's what we were trying to say in an allegorical way at the beginning of, of uh, 54, in an allegorical way. I think it's precisely allegory the concept uh, uh, that we should focus on to understand what's happening in popular culture. Uh, and of course, I'm, I'm focusing on Italy, uh, but I think that what is happening in Italy uh, is a peculiar version of what is starting to happen almost everywhere. Uh, in Italy, something is going on in Italy, something very interesting. As a matter of fact, it's been happening for about 15 years now. Uh, I'm talking about a considerable number of books published since uh, 1993. Uh, why 1993? Because in 1993, the whole political system of my country collapsed, completely collapsed, because uh, uh, mm, corruption uh, had become, by all standards, unsustainable. There was a, a big investigation uh, called uh, uh, Clean Hands Inquiry, uh, that unveiled uh, the level of corruption at all levels of the political system and uh, the two major parties, the Socialist Party and the Christian Democrat Party, completely disbanded. The National Secretary of the Socialist Party had to flee to Northern Africa where uh, he uh, stayed for a few years until he died. And uh, the top leaders of the Christian Democrat Party uh, went on trial for corruption and the trial was broadcast on national TV. It was the end of the 50 long uh, um, domination of the political life of the country. It was a strange, energizing period and uh, many creative energies that had been compressed under the cloak of national conformism uh, all of a sudden were more free to express themselves. Uh, um, for example, the Luther Blissett project started the day after, in 19, the, the, the year after, sorry, uh, in 1994. And in the meantime, uh, the, the web was rising as a gigantic uh, uh, communication and social phenomenon. So uh, 1993 is really the starting point of what uh, um, I call the new Italian epic. Um, the, a, a considerable number of books. Most of them are novels. 
some of them are UNOs, Unidentified Narrative Objects. Uh, many of them have become bestsellers, uh, and even more tellingly, long sellers. Um, in Italy and even in other countries, uh, they were written by a heterogeneous bunch of uh, authors. Uh, and I'm going to take all of these books under this umbrella name, The New Italian Epic Narratives. What do I mean by epic? Uh, I want to use this adjective in all its senses, uh, all the meanings you can find in the dictionary. Uh, epic because these narratives draw inspiration from and share characteristic uh, with old narrative poems, uh, works dealing with heroic, uh, adventurous, uh, at times even supernatural deeds. Um, and historical accomplishments. Uh, indeed, most of these books are historical novels or may be approximately described as historical novels, albeit very peculiar, or they adopt narrative devices that are typical or hist of historical novels. In short, they look like historical novels. Uh, epic also because these stories are rather ambitious in scope as they deal with the destinies of vast uh, communities or uh, social classes, even whole nations, and sometimes even the whole mankind. Uh, epic also because uh, of the scale of the problems and difficulties that the authors have to overcome in order to write this book. Uh, uh, these books. Uh, in, it's a task that usually takes uh, several years, uh, three years and a half to write our novel Q, for example. Uh, also because these books uh, um, extend beyond the usual or ordinary size uh, of, uh, of, uh, of a novel and sometimes uh, even beyond the boundaries of the book form. Um, I just said that many of these books are or look like uh, historical novels and of of course, Italy has a fertile tradition of uh, historical novels uh, because the national novel, the one that laid the very foundation of n n foundations of novel writing in the Italian language was a historical novel. It was I Promessi Sposi, betrothed by uh, Alessandro Manzoni that was uh, written uh, in the uh, 1820s. Uh, and then there were several great uh, epoch-defining and seminal historical novels during the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, um, and of course, 30 years ago, uh, there was Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, uh, which was a sensational case of return of the historical novel. Uh, and, but it was a different thing. Uh, it was a, a new thing because it was also a tongue-in-cheek book, uh, um, a multi-layered parody of a historical novel, uh, but this is a very long story. Um, in many ways, the writers of the new Italian epic uh, are reviving a national tradition. Uh, they are experimenting with the forms of historical literature, popular fiction, and genre fiction uh, to deal uh, with uh, complex issues such as uh, the history of Italy, the colonial past of Italy, the public memory of the fascist dictatorship, uh, uh, the relationship between Europe and America, and sometimes they venture even further. 
Uh, in many cases, uh, uh, these narratives are set uh, during the most uh, uh, complex and turbulent periods of Italian history. Uh, before I try to explain what these books have in common and what they are about and why I put them under uh, the umbrella name of New Italian Epic and uh, why they are relevant if you want to understand popular culture in Italy today, uh, let me drop a few names uh, and titles uh, um, of uh, authors, uh, names of authors and titles of books. I already mentioned uh, two of our books, uh, but I, I want to mention uh, uh, also books by other authors, uh, even if uh, their output is not yet translated into English, because I think it's important to mention these guys and make some examples of the stuff they are writing. There's a guy called uh, Valerio Evangelisti, which I'm, um, who I'm, I'm going to show you, because he has a remarkable... Uh, Remarkable appearance. Okay, it's this guy. Okay, Valerio Evangelisti. See full size image. Okay, this guy is uh, the is the author of many novels blending history, science fiction, and supernatural horror. Uh, uh, his stories are highly political. For example, they are about labor struggles. Uh, or the origins of capitalism and imperialism. Uh, their structure is very, very complex. Uh, plots unfold in unpredictable ways, and the allegories are so tight and packed with symbols that sometimes you feel like you're uh, reading uh, two novels at once written in counterpoint. Uh, uh, his most interesting work is a trilogy uh, called uh, Metallo Urlante, Screaming Metal, an allegory of the birth of capitalism, which Evangelisti represents as a manifestation of Ogun, uh, the African Yoruba god of metals, uh, mining, blades, and butchery. Um, uh, Evangelisti's books have a really huge and active fan base in Italy. Uh, there's another guy called Andrea Camilleri, who is older because he's 80 years old, actually, and uh, he looks even older than that. Uh, okay, it's this guy. Okay, see full size image. Andrea Camilleri is um, uh, an old guy, but his success as a novelist uh, began in the late 90s. He is best known even to a tiny niche of Anglophone readers. As a murder mystery writer, uh, his serial character, uh, Detective Montalbano, is the main character of dozens of bestsellers all across Europe. Uh, it's incredible how many copies he sells, millions and millions of copies in Italy. Uh, but uh, his most significant works are experimental historical novels such as La Presa di Macalè, The Conquest of Macalè, which is an African city. Um, it's a violent attack on Italy's uh, colonial past and its fascist legacy, uh, with the disturbing analogies between the invasion of Ethiopia and child abuse. Um, and there's also an, an, another book uh, which is very interesting. It's called Privo di Titolo. Um, it's a pun on both meanings of the term unentitled. 
um, in which Camilleri completely debunks uh, um, the story of a martyr of the early fascist movement in Sicily. A characteristic, a very interesting characteristic of Camilleri's writing that gets completely lost in translation, unfortunately, is the language that he invented by mixing Italian with words and syntactic rules of several Sicilian dialects. There's another guy called uh, Giancarlo de Cataldo. He's a, a judge. In his uh, first job is as a uh, judge in the uh, Italian criminal justice system. Images. I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, uh, so uh, there will be a, a delay each time I want to show the face of one of these guys. Here it is. Okay, Giancarlo de Cataldo wrote one of the most relevant novels of this decade. It's called Romando Criminale. The title is quite pleonastic. It means crime novel. Uh, it was published in 2002, and it, it is a huge, passionate, and semi-fictional reconstruction of how uh, a famous criminal gang, a very powerful criminal gang, doing business at the intersection of mafia, intelligence services, and neo-fascist terrorism, managed to take over in the Roman underworld in the mid-1970s. This novel later became a movie uh, that was quite successful in several European countries. Um, then there's another guy called Carlo Lucarelli, who is very, very famous in Italy and also in France because he's a TV host. He's not only uh, a writer, but he appears on television uh, quite, quite often. Um, Carlo Lucarelli is... Uh, uh, very well known as a murder mystery writer, but also because uh, uh, in the past 10 years he's been writing and conducting true crime shows on the national television, uh, which were uh, collected uh, as uh, DVD boxes that were bestsellers uh, in Italy. Um, but his latest book, L'Ottava Vibrazione, The Eighth Vibration, is a turning point in his career. It's a 500 pages long, uncanny uh, multi-point of view, extremely complex historical novel set in Eastern Africa under the Italian colonial rule. Uh, the year is uh, 1896, a few weeks before the Battle of Adwa, which was the most crushing defeat that the Italian colonial army suffered uh, in Africa with more than 6,000 casualties in one day, a catastrophe that left the field covered with uh, mutilated and even castrated corpses. Uh, then there's another guy who, who is a madman, actually. His name is Giuseppe Genna, and he's a kind of a psychopath. Okay. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. That's, that's why I can, I can... Okay, take a look at his face in, 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 in this picture. Okay. okay. He chose the picture, uh, that picture for the back covers of his novels. Okay. Uh, okay, uh, the only Jenna book that was translated into English and published in the U.S. is a mystery thriller, uh, kind of a conspiracy novel called In the Name of Ishmael. Um, but uh, this writer has long given up uh, uh, writing thrillers, and uh, his most uh, recent works uh, are characterized by a wild narrative hubris. He's very, very ambitious. The, uh, his latest novel is titled Hitler. Uh, it's a biopic of Adolf Hitler from conception to death, 
and beyond, uh, because we see what happened to he what happens to Hitler's soul after his body dies in the bunker. Then there's a. The, uh, there are no pictures of her, uh, Babsy Jones, a woman, so you don't think it's just a guy thing. Uh, uh, she, uh, there are no pictures of her, so I can show you uh, any. Uh, she wrote only one book, Sappiano le mie parole di sangue, Let my words taste of blood. And I'm including it here because it's an example of UNO, uh, unidentified narrative object. It's a, it's a quasi-novel, uh, quasi-romanzo, that's the way the author herself calls it, and it is set in Kosovo from 1999 onwards, uh, with a few forays back into the Middle Ages. Uh, it reads like a poem written in prose, uh, more or less, with countless allusions and citations from Hamlet, and it deals with ethnic cleansing, not on the part of the Serbs, but the other way around, against uh, the Serbs on the part of the Albanian majority of Kosovo. Uh, this book also transcends um, the boundaries of, of, of book uh, as a form because um, parts of it were uh, deemed un unpublishable by the publisher, uh, and so they are available uh, online on the website, on the official website of the novel, and this is signaled in the book, in, in footnotes. Uh, there, another guy, Roberto Saviano, currently is the most talked about Italian author worldwide, absolutely, and the New York Times uh, in uh, last January uh, included his book Gomorra in the list of the best 100 novels of 2007, novels, uh, books of 2007. It was the only Italian book in the list. Uh, okay. Roberto Saviano, uh, in Italy, his book, uh, Gomorra, Gomorra, is the biggest bestseller of the past three years, and it's another UNO, because it's a fusion of non-fiction, novel, and investigative journalism. It is written in a powerful, uh, visionary, hallucinatory style, with long sequences in which the narrating eye uh, goes berserk and piles up images, examples, and anecdotes, uh, uh, and the narrative turns in the most gripping and vivid tale of organized crime ever published in Europe. Uh, at the end of 2006, uh, the, the Italian state provided the Saviano with a permanent police escort um, uh, because he received death threats from uh, some bosses of Neapolitan organized crime. Now he's living under, under police protection in a secret place in Rome. Um, obviously, there are more and more authors. Uh, I could only mention them in passing, but it's impossible because there are many, many, many of them. These writers don't compose a generation in the ordinary age-based sense because Camilleri is 80 years old and Saviano is 29. But it's a literary generation, as uh, all of them have written and published their most important uh, books uh, after 1993, in the past 10-15 years. Um, how many of these books are available in English? Very few, very few. Almost none of them, actually. Uh, why? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> because the Anglophone publishing industry is usually very slow in realizing that something is happening in other linguistic domains, if at all. Uh, I'll make an example I'm quite familiar with. Our debut novel, Q, 
was first published in Italy in 1999 and was published in the, in the US as late as 2004, five years later. Uh, five years are, are a long time in the age of the internet. Uh, um, by then, it had already been successful all over Europe and very well received in South America, even in Cuba. Q was available years before than in the US, in Cuba. Uh, so there's uh, a literary, and not only literary, there's cultural turmoil in Italy. It's very far from being a flash in the pan. And the books are translated in uh, dozens of languages, but only a few of them exist in English. Uh, the books are uh, famous and discussed uh, in uh, many countries, but not in the US, the UK, and the rest of the British Commonwealth. The turmoil is largely ignored in the English-speaking world, which I hope will catch up with us sooner or later. Um, but let's go back to the common characteristics of the new Italian epic. None of the following features is common uh, to all the books, but each of those books shares many features with all the others. Narrative complexity. The new Italian epic is popular and complex at the same time. Uh, these narratives often demand hard cognitive work on the part of the reader, but they are successful, they are bestsellers, and they have huge fan bases. How is, this po is that possible? Two reasons. First one is that the public is smarter than the industry and the intellectuals usually think. And the second is that narrative complexity is not achieved to the detriment of uh, readability. Um, uh, that uh, hard cognitive work I mentioned is often rewarded uh, by satisfactory ways of solving plot problems and releasing, releasing the tension. Uh, this is done by using all the plot devices usually found in genre fiction. Uh, those that in the screenwriter's jargon have names like MacGuffin, Red Herring, Cliffhanger, and stuff like that. Uh, it goes without saying uh, that in these works, the conventional rules of genre fiction are frequently forced, strained, and uh, subverted, which takes us to the second feature, subtle subversion of language and style. Um, most of these books are thoroughly, thoroughly experimental, but uh, the experimentation doesn't show up if one reads the pages hastily or absent-mindedly. Uh, it is often a concealed experimentation uh, which aims at subverting the register of language usually uh, found in genre fiction. At first sight, the style looks uh, uh, simple and smooth with no peaks uh, and no hollows either. Uh, uh, but while you're reading, you feel there's something strange, uh, like uh, a reverberation. And uh, all these reverberations produce a cumulative effect. Uh, if you pay attention while going through the sentences, you gradually become aware of a, a swarm, a swarm of tiny interventions on language that alter the syntax, the sound, and the meaning of words and sentences. I'll make two examples. Um, Giuseppe Genna, uh, the guy, the, the creepy guy that I showed uh, a few minutes ago, in his book Hitler, he repeats a verb that is esorbitare, which means to exceed, or in a stricter sense, to leave the orbit. 
Um, every time Hitler takes a new important step in his life, Jenna, uh, the all-knowing narrator, says, look at him. He's uh, exorbita. He's exceeding. Hitler exorbita. He's overstepping. He's leaving the orbit. And he uses this word so frequently and drives it in your head so hard that later on it becomes impossible to find the verb somewhere else and not to think of Hitler. He eternally associated this verb with the figure of Adolf Hitler. And there's more than that, because if a reader is aware of the Latin origins of the Italian language, uh, this uh, verb resonates with two more words, which are desiderio, desire, and disastro, disaster. And their Latin root uh, can be seen also in the English words, uh, because desiderio, desire, desiderum, means uh, uh, getting something from the stars, de siderum, from the stars. And disaster, dis, aster, means leaving the protective sphere of your lucky star. So each time, driven by his own desire, Hitler leaves the orbit, he, he provokes a disaster. So it's subtle, but in Italian you can, you can detect it. Another example is the use of alliteration in Giancarlo de Cataldo's Nelle Mani Giuste, uh, the sequel to Romanzo Criminale, all of a sudden uh, the author drops lexical cluster bombs, such as homuncoli ossequiosi ostacolati, which means obsequious little men finding obstacles, or orridi orifici ornati, embellished horrible orifices, and it's a crime novel, and it's a bestseller, it's popular fiction. So there's a concealed experimentation within uh, the uh, apparently be within the boundaries of genre fiction and popular fiction. Then there's third point, the third feature is the uh, point of view, experimentation with points of view, uh, even non-human or immaterial uh, points of view. Uh, these novels are crowded with characters and names, sometimes uh, as happens in, in, in our novels, for example, more than 100 characters. And the point of view keeps shifting from one to the next, uh, uh, thanks to what literary theory calls a free indirect speech, but it's, uh, okay, this is intellectual jargon, not, not interested in it. Uh, but I'll speak about this more in details in a few minutes, because the point of view uh, has to do with the ethics of this experimentation with the genres of popular culture and literature. Uh, the fourth feature, um, I titled it, uh, Don't Keep It Cool and Dry. Uh, the new Italian epic certainly doesn't lack uh, humor, uh, but it seems to reject the irony and uh, cynical detachment so frequent in a certain kind of postmodern culture. Uh, the stories are told in passionate ways by authors who, who believe in literature and are truly, madly, deeply in love with it, and they also have a clear and uncompromising stance on the ethical value of telling stories. Then there's fifth feature, Uchronia and alternative history. There is a subgenre in science fiction called Uchronia, although uh, that term is more used in French, Italian, and Spanish, while the English name is usually alternative 
history fiction or alternate history fiction. The most common example of this kind of narratives is uh, Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, um, which is set during the 1980s, uh, but in a time continuum where the Nazis have won the Second World War. Um, an alternate history novel is based upon a what-if uh, speculation and set in a world made different by a bifurcation of time. Uh, some new Italian epic books are Uchronias, alternative history fiction, for example, Havana Graham by uh, my colleague Wuming Five, which is set in an alternate 1970s showbiz where David Bowie is a communist. <laughs> Or uh, Il Signor Figlio by Alessandro Zaccuri, which recounts an alternative life of uh, one of the most important uh, poets of the, of the Italian 19th century, Giacomo Leopardi and his father. Anyway, uh, most of these books are implicit Uchronias. Uh, they don't speculate on how things would be in a parallel continuum created by a bifurcation of time. They explore the very possibility of the bifurcation. Um, the moments in which uh, history might go in another di direction and everything seems still possible, any possible outcome. <coughs> Napoleon could still win at Waterloo, for example. Then there's the sixth feature is the big scope, big scope. The fact uh, that uh, the authors of these books are Italian or write in Italian doesn't mean that they have to set their novels in Italy. Um, some uh, academics at uh, Middlebury College called uh, uh, these kind of novels global fiction uh, because these novels uh, feel free to deal with whatever uh, historical event in whatever part of the world. Evangelisti, for example, wrote several novels set in the Wild West or in Mexico during the Revolution. <laughs> and we are writing a trilogy which is about uh, the relationship between Europe and America during the American Revolution. The last point, which is uh, one of the most important, uh, I titled it Esorbitare in my notes, um, because the new Italian epic frequently uh, leaves the orbit and drifts away. Um, you see it in the sky and people, people say, hey, what's that? Is it a bird? No. Is it a, it's an airplane? No. Wait a second. It's Superman. No, it's a, an identified narrative object. Uh, fiction, uh, non-fiction, prose, uh, poetry, literature, science, uh, mythology, screwball comedy, gardening, anything, anything. Uh, in the past 15 years, uh, many Italian authors have written books that couldn't be labeled or pigeonholed in any way uh, because they contained almost everything. Uh, and what are those smaller things uh, swarming around the UNO? That's the cloud of uh, comics, short stories, uh, fan fiction, spin-offs, table board games, anything. All the tributes um, made by the readers to the transmedia nature of this literature, which is open to interaction, cooperation, and co-creation. Uh, I think the clearest example of this is our novel Manituana, whose official website is completely open to any kind of interaction. And uh, we publish all the fan fiction related, related to the novel that we receive. And maybe I'll show the website uh, during the Q&A session, because it, I, I think it, it can 
it can be useful to explain what's happening. Now, let's go back to that allegorical level, uh, level I mentioned uh, about 20 minutes ago. And let's go back to basics for a moment, because I used uh, this word quite often uh, in, the, in the past minutes, allegory. W what's an allegory? Um, it's a rhetorical device. Uh, in Greek, allos means other, and egorein means to speak. More precisely, it means to speak in a public context, because the word agora, which is contained in the verb egorein, means public square. So speak in the public square. Speak other, allo egorein, uh, to say one thing, why meaning another. Uh, to tell a story which is actually another story because the characters and actions stand in for other characters and other actions. Uh, or because the characters personify abstract concept, uh, for example, moral virtues. The most common example of this is the blindfolded la lady holding a pair of scales. That's an allegory of justice. Okay. Um, the most common allegory you can find in uh, genre fiction, usually, is historical allegory, uh, which is the basis of all historical novels and historical flicks, uh, plays, uh, films. For example, 300 is a historical allegory. You see Spartans and Persians. You see Leonidas fighting at the Thermopylae. But the movie is really about George W. Bush's war on terror. So a historical allegory is a set of analogies and comparisons between the past that is depicted in the, in the work and the present in which the work was created. Uh, broadly speaking, all uh, works of fiction set uh, in another period of history are allegories whether the authors had that intention or not, whether the allegories are consistent or not, because each time an author, an artist, decides to reckon a past age, uh, they, they do it from the present, because th that's where we all are. And so uh, there's always a comparison, be it implicit or explicit, between now and then. Uh, sometimes uh, it's intentional, sometimes it's only half-conscious, sometimes it's completely unconscious, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's confused, but it's always there. Even more uh, broadly uh, speaking, almost every novel is historical in a way, because most novels are written in the past tense, uh, which means that they are set in a time that's already uh, past in the moment uh, we Read, we read the book. Um, anyway, strict uh, historical allegories are very shallow, they're very superficial, uh, because they become outdated very easily. Uh, sooner or later, uh, readers uh, start uh, missing the context and the references, uh, and the work stop, stops speaking to the present of the reader. Um, because it, it's uh, hopelessly tied to uh, the time in which it was created. Uh, a work uh, that aims at lasting, uh, uh, lasting through the ages, uh, must not rely on superficial allegories. I'll make an example. Back when we were working on uh, 54, we uh, found a copy of a 1954 
Swords and Sandals movie called Attila, uh, directed by one guy called Pietro Francisci, an Italian movie. Uh, starring as Attila was Anthony Quinn, uh, which was in Italy quite often in those days. Uh, he made a lot of movies in Italy. Uh, and it was ridiculous, uh, shallow allegory if there ever was one. It must have been an unofficial Vatican production because uh, uh, the Huns uh, uh, clearly stood in for the atheist Russian savages. Uh, one of the barbarians even uttered uh, as a line a famous sentence by Joseph Stalin. Uh, and the decadent Roman Empire stood in for the corrupt materialistic America and the Pope. The Pope was the Deus Ex Machina appearing uh, at the end, uh, talking to Attila, convincing him to be good, to be a good guy and not to invade Rome and saving everyone's hide, um, Catholic propaganda. Um, and it was very shallow. There is a deeper level of allegory, which reverberates with three layers of time, not only two, three. The past uh, represented in the work, uh, the present in which the work was created, which has already becomes pa become past, and the present in which the work is enjoyed. Uh, whenever this happens, Tonight, next week, in 2030, uh, in a million years, uh, that kind of present never becomes past. Uh, uh, works of fiction that keep on echoing with uh, the present are usually called classics. Uh, and they're built upon the same kind of deep allegory one can find in uh, myths and legends. The meta-historical allegory, for example, the story of Robin Hood, uh, has survived through the ages uh, and is constantly retold. Uh, every generation uh, tells that story again because it's allegory work in, in all ages. Um, of course, not every deep allegory becomes a, a classic. Uh, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. It is also a matter of aesthetical and literary qualities and also a matter of luck uh, because the selective processes that create the canons are arbitrary. Uh, you never can tell it takes many years or even centuries to really understand what stuff uh, a work of fiction is made of, which means it is too soon to know whether 300 will age gracefully or not. I suspect not, but anyway. Uh, I'm not trying to foresee if our novels will last uh, because my aim is different. Uh, uh, I want to find what I'm, I called the allegorism of the new Italian epic. Uh, this is a difficult word. Uh, it's the last one. Don't worry. Allegorism. Because you, this is the MIT. Everybody knows what uh, the word algorithm means. Uh, an algorithm is a set of rules and procedures that must be followed step by step in solving a problem or accomplishing an end. Uh, it is a word used in mathematics and computer programming. I borrowed and trivialized the term algorithm from Alex Galloway and Mackenzie Work, uh, who wrote uh, fascinating theoretical texts on video games and gamer culture. Video games. Uh, each game has an algorithm, and you've got to get to know it if you want to play, if you want to uh, solve the problems, uh, if you want to sharpen your skills as a gamer, and if you want to go up the ladder of levels. Uh, but the game is also an allegory, because it is made of moving images 
that represent something else, uh, mathematical procedures, binary code, uh, the language that the machine speaks to itself and, 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 and we can speak. Uh, you can get to know the, the game's algorithm only by interacting with those images, that is, with the allegory. Uh, in order to know the algorithm and follow it step by step, you have to understand and master the algorithm. You have to crack the allegory and discover its secrets. And not only games, but also novels and movies and other narratives have algorithms. Uh, algorithms are paths that you have to find and follow in order to find the deep allegory within, underneath. Uh, because per perhaps if we, can, if we can trace those paths and uh, follow them and uh, find the algorithms of many different narratives, then we can make comparisons and find what these narratives have in common behind their appearances. Uh, what does a historical novel like 54, for example, have in common with an UNO like Gomorrah by Saviano? Um, DNA studies uh, have made it possible uh, to find close relationship, uh, relationship between animal species which scientists couldn't even imagine uh, or uh, made it possible to separate animal species uh, which scientists considered very close to each other. Uh, DNA Evidence proved beyond any reasonable doubt that two species were actually one. Uh, the black panther is nothing other than a leopard born with no yellow patches. Maybe if we reason in terms of algorithms, we can do the same for books and other kinds of narratives. So let's go back to that short uh, uh, allegorical text, uh, opening 54, because <coughs> I suspect that's the encrypted guide to a whole family of allegorisms. Uh, the new Italian epic deals with the fact that uh, all returns to order are always illusions, uh, because there can never be any freezing or uh, even sl slowing down of history. Um, Post-war means nothing, is the first sentence. And post-war, after war, uh, never means anything because the real war is never over. Uh, there's an endless conflict. It's a conflict between us, the human species, and our self-destructive tendencies. Uh, deep down, underneath, uh, all the books that I mentioned in this talk are trying to tell us that we, particularly we, the West, can't go on living uh, the way we've been living for all these years, uh, hiding the trash under the rug until the rug is raised out of sight, spiritual and material trash, uh, because we refuse to admit uh, that we uh, could face extinction as a species uh, in a future uh, that's nearer than we expected, maybe not in a few days, not in a few years, not, 
maybe not not even uh, in a hundred years maybe but it may happen in a, in a future that's not so far away um, a future that's unbearable to figure out uh, it's unbearable because it is painful uh, to think uh, uh, that all that we have built and achieved uh, in our lifetimes and uh, even more important in centuries of civilization uh, will amount to nothing in the end because everything dissipates, everything turns uh, to dust sooner or later. It happened to other civilizations before. Uh, uh, we might as well accept it and live a less deluded life. Uh, but what we cannot accept uh, is the short-sightedness and arrogance of uh, most of our fellow humans who are doing all they can to speed up the process and make it as traumatic as possible. Um, let's go back to the, that uh, thing of the point of view experimentation because uh, at this point it, it's important and I'm approaching the end of the talk. Don't worry, don't worry. The oblique point of view. In, um, in the uh, new Italian epic, there's a lot of experimentation with points of view. Um, and there's a word in Italian, uh, it's lo sguardo, which is a very tricky word. Uh, there's a, a great translator from uh, Italian into English, William Weaver. He translated uh, Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, Foucault's Pendulum, and uh, other Italian authors who wrote an essay on how to translate the works of Carlo Emilio Gadda, which is he, he is one of the he was one of the most important authors in uh, 20th century Italy. But his uh, texts are extremely complex, almost unreadable. So William Weber wrote a short essay on how to translate Gadda, and uh, there's a part in which he handles the, the word sguardo, which is very difficult to translate because it, it means look taking a look, it means also gaze, and it means uh, glance. So uh, it covers uh, several uh, meanings associated with uh, watching at things, uh, a focused uh, uh, way of uh, looking at things, a gaze, and uh, an occasional way of looking at things, uh, a glance. And that's the word we use when we talk about the, the experiments uh, that, that, that we're making with the point of view, lo sguardo obliquo. Um, lo sguardo and the point of view are ethical matters, not only perceptive or stylistical matters, because um, uh, when you decide what to look at and uh, how long uh, you're going to uh, look at uh, uh, one thing instead of another, that's also an ethical choice. That's not only a stylistic element. Um, some examples of experiments with the point of view in the, this kind of uh, Italian fiction. Uh, in uh, the Screaming Metal series of novels by Valeria Evangelisti, the main character is a palero. Uh, a palero is a sorcerer of Afro-Cuban black magic. It's called the palero because the, that kind of black magic is, uh, has a Spanish name. It's La Regla del Palo Mayombe, uh, Yoruba origins. It's associated with voodoo, santeria, and also the Brazilian candomblé or the Jamaican obia. It's uh, yeah, uh, uh, Afro-Caribbean magic, Afro-Caribbean uh, religion, uh, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, this palero is called the Pantera. It's a tribute to the heavy metal band. Um, all the chapters of uh, Evangelistis books uh, have names of metal bands, Sepultura, Pantera, etc. Et and, 
And uh, this uh, Palero named Pantera uh, witnesses uh, the birth of capitalism, the expansion of uh, capitalism uh, um, during the 1870s uh, in Mexico and uh, the Wild West of the, of the United States. And uh, Afro-Cuban back magic is the allegory that allows him to understand what's going on, the powerfulness of the new mode of production. Uh, he, he, he meets some uh, early socialists and Marxists during the novels, but uh, his vision is clearer than that of Marxists. Uh, um, La regla del palo mayombe is uh, more useful to understand capitalism than Marxism ever was. So it's an oblique point of view. It's very, it's very unexpected. Um, in Gomorra uh, uh, by Roberto Saviano, the narrating I changes. It's not always the same character saying I, but there is no explicit signal uh, of this. Uh, and so uh, most of the readers in all the countries where the book was published uh, uh, mistook uh, uh, the work as com uh, completely, they misinterpreted, they misunderstood the book as completely autobiography, autobiographical. But uh, uh, the narrating I uh, actually doesn't correspond always to the same character. Uh, because sometimes the narrating eye is uh, uh, quite visionary and rambling and uh, piling up images, uh, a, a, a confusing heap of images to convey uh, the chaotic nature of organized crime and illegal capitalism in Italy. And sometimes it's very, very rational and the book turns to more traditional investigative journalism. Uh, why? Because uh, uh, Saviano, uh, used the first person also to describe uh, uh, things happened to other people, uh, things happened to somebody else, to uh, some of his friends uh, uh, facing the arrogance of organized crime in their everyday life. Uh, but there's always I, I, and there's no explicit uh, uh, communication that uh, it, it's not the same character, which is, uh, and the effect is really powerful. In, in uh, our book 54, one of the characters is a TV set a self-conscious TV set, a TV set with a soul, with a consciousness. Uh, in its um, used TV set, uh, it was stolen in a US military base, base. it's American made, it's a MacGuffin Electric Deluxe, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's the model, and he thinks, he thinks, and he has an opinion on almost everything, and we see uh, 1950s Italian everyday life uh, reflected on the glass of, uh, of his screen, his, because he, he, we usually uh, uh, use he and him to, uh, to refer him. And um, he has a very disdainful opinion of Italians because <laughs> he doesn't work because it's, uh, it's broken, but he doesn't know it. No. Uh, uh, Nobody's able to switch it on, and so everybody keeps selling it to somebody else. And so he travels the whole country, 
and keeps uh, mumbling, uh, muttering to him uh, to himself, uh, uh, "These Italians are brutes. These Italians are real barbarians, ignorant people. I want to go back home to the U.S. They they're not even able to to turn me on. What the hell?" And he uh, keeps rambling like this. And it, it, it it's an object. Um, I mean, it's um, it, it, it's not a person. It's a non-human point of view. And there's also the point of view of a bar. A, a, a public uh, place, a coffee shop, a bar, uh, it's the bar attached to the local section of, uh, in Bologna, the local section of the Italian Communist Party. It's the bar where most activists of the party hang out and they uh, talk uh, about uh, the Italian politics and the scandals, they read the newspapers, they talk about uh, soccer, and, um, and there's a narrating we and this we is not attached to any particular character uh, of, of, of these chapters. Um, it's uh, kind of the algebraic average of all the point of view of, view of all the people uh, gathering at the Bar Aurora. Uh, so it's a bar itself speaking. We at the Bar Aurora is the collective voice of the bar, another non-human point of view. The most interesting uh, example uh, Grande Madre Rossa, uh, the book written, uh, another book written by Giuseppe Genna, the, the madman, the creepy character, etc. It's a book ab uh, about uh, uh, terrorist scare, terrorist threats uh, in Europe. Uh, um, it anticipated, uh, in a way, uh, uh, the bombing attacks uh, in uh, the Madrid subway or in uh, the tube uh, of London, because it was, it was published two years before that. Uh, in, it starts uh, with uh, um, a gaze. It's called Lo sguardo sta altissimo. The gaze is very high, but this gaze has, has no pair of eyeballs behind it. There's no brain attached to it. It isn't anybody's gaze. Um, it's not uh, the all-knowing narrator. It's not a character. It's completely disembodied. It's uh, an immaterial, abstract gaze, and uh, it uh, floats about uh, in the upper layer of the atmosphere. Uh, lo sguardo sta altissimo, the gaze is very high, and all of a sudden, this gaze plunges down. Uh, it starts a fast descent. It penetrates all the strata of the atmosphere until it dives onto the city of Milan. Uh, it uh, penetrates the roof of the Palazzo di Giustizia, which is the district uh, um, uh, attorney office and tribunal of Milan. It uh, goes through all the floors of the building until it reaches the very foundations of the building, it touches a powerful bomb and it dissolves as the bomb goes off and the Palazzo di Giustizia is completely destroyed. And then it disappears. There's no, more, there's no mention of this gaze in the rest of the novel, which is a crime novel. Uh, um, uh, the, the kind uh, of novel that you can find uh, at airports or subway stations published by one of the biggest publishers in Italy. It's genre fiction, but there's this opening chapter which is really mystifying because uh, uh, the second chapter starts with a stream of consciousness of one of the characters, human characters, and all the rest of uh, the book is extreme, but it's quite traditional as far as point of view is, uh, is concerned. And so the reader keeps wondering, what the hell was that? The gaze, whose gaze? 
what gaze, an immaterial gaze. I think that this kind of experimentation in genre fiction with the point of view is very interesting from an ethical point of view, sorry, um, because uh, it uh, brings about a critique of anthropocentrism, of the belief that the human species is at the center of the universe. If you dislodge the gaze uh, from uh, a human brain, from a human pair of eyeballs, and you associate it with uh, uh, inanimated objects uh, or even with abstract uh, entities, uh, you are criticizing uh, the anthropocentrism, uh, anthropocentrism uh, the belief that uh, we, the human species, are the most important species, we are the center of everything, and uh, our interest uh, is uh, the most important, etc., that uh, is preventing us to face the possibility of our own extinction. And, and that's very interesting. Um, we are not used uh, to uh, thinking uh, of this. Uh, we, we usually uh, hear in the, uh, a soundbite in the media. We hear it every day. The planet is in danger. Um, but as uh, a, a great comedian, George Carlin, put it, the planet is fine, the people are fucked. Uh, pardon my Italian. <laughs> pardon my Italian. Because... Uh, the planet already faced mass extinctions of species. During the Permian, in the prehistory, almost every living species on Earth uh, disappeared. And uh, for hundreds of millions of years, there were only tiny worms and protozoa and, yeah, tiny, tiny beings. And, and then, gradually, life came back, uh, and the complexity and biodiversity uh, of life and uh, new ecosystems were formed. So the planet can survive almost anything, everything. Um, uh, we are in danger, not the planet. We are not used to uh, thinking that we are dispensable. The planet can do without us, uh, and, and she can do very well, thank you. Um, and and uh, more than that, the planet uh, is uh, already trying to throw us away. We're not only dispensable, we are disposable. We are disposable. And experiment, ethical experimentation with uh, point, uh, points of view uh, can help poetry, literature, popular culture, cinema, and uh, any uh, form of culture to understand this reality and help us to understand it. Um, uh, before September the 11th and shortly uh, thereafter, um, art and literature uh, lived the same kind of deluded life that we all were living. Um, most artists and authors failed to ring any alarm bell, which is one of the functions of, uh, of art, to ring alarm bells when it's necessary. Uh, their works didn't live up to the tasks of facing uh, reality, imagining some kind of future. Even the science fiction doesn't imagine the future anymore. Uh, making us think of who we are and uh, where we are headed uh, to. I think uh, those are the basic functions of art, but uh, art in some way, in many cases, abdicated uh, to these functions. Artists kept uh, pushing 
the trash under the rug like everybody else. Cold irony, uh, irresponsible detachment, uh, tongue-in-cheek discourse, um, sophisticated sarcasm, uh, cynicism, and uh, smart jokes even when you're clinging to the edge of the cliff only by your little finger. Uh, all this has become unsustainable, uh, ecologically speaking and ethically speaking and aesthetically speaking, uh, because we are facing extinction. I think that we need artists and authors, especially in popular culture, uh, that take at least some responsibility for what they create and what their works convey. Uh, we need more ethical attachment to what we do. Um, and I think that what lies underneath all the books I have talked about uh, can be read in this sentence that I read at the beginning. What fools called peace simply meant moving away from the front. So let's not pretend that the front of this war is far away and call this pretending peace because we are not at peace, and what's more, art should never entertain the thought of being at peace. Thank you. So we're, we can now take some questions from people. I've got a mic, so uh, Milo, you're going to help run this around. So who wants to get us started? I was a little bit rambling, no, improvising, and so uh, maybe some parts were still confused. I'm still trying to, still trying to define. So I wanted to invite you. You, you made an aside about the role of fans and on your yeah. site for your novel, and yeah. maybe introduce you to, and invite you to go back and talk about that yeah. a little more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because of the collective nature of our work, uh, we probably are more naturally inclined to uh, participation and uh, then uh, individual authors are, uh, which doesn't mean that individual authors are not inclined to that, but we prob probably we, because already work together, uh, are more open to that kind of, uh, to that kind of dimension. Uh, and also because our roots are in the Luther Brissett project, which was indiscriminately open to all kinds of contributions and uh, collaborative processes and co-creation. Uh, I, I never got to know most of the people who did stuff with me, who did things with me during the 90s. Uh, I, never, I, I never saw them in person. I don't even know the, uh, the real names. Uh, but we did things all together uh, via the, the internet. It was web one to war at, at the time, but we were already 2.0 as, 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 as far as, as our attitude was, was concerned. And so uh, that was an open dimension, and uh, Wuming is a collective, and uh, so it's only natural that we expand uh, uh, the collective at times on specific projects. Uh, for example, uh, we wrote uh, a novel uh, together with uh, uh, many of our readers. We wrote it online, uh, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't exist in English, unfortunately, um, but it's uh, the, uh, the Italian 
version is uh, downloadable uh, from the website, uh, uh, and it was kind of a laboratory uh, where uh, we um, we wrote the first chapter of uh, of, of uh, this novel, and then all together started to improvise. Uh, uh, the rest of the narrative, and uh, many people sent contributions, and uh, we uh, kept uh, processing those contributions for weeks. And out of that novel, uh, many other uh, works uh, on other platforms and with other languages, uh, other uh, genres, uh, um, of pop culture were born because uh, it became a musical composition, for example, uh, for, for example, a musical score. Uh, it became a, a graphic novel that's, uh, that's also down downloadable from uh, from our website. Uh, it became a theatrical a theatrical piece. Uh, piece. And, and uh, yeah, um, it, it kept uh, uh, it kept. Uh, um, Shifting shape uh, and it kept uh, becoming uh, something else, and it and it still is um, turning to uh, other things. Because, for example, one uh, a few months ago, uh, uh, the, there was uh, another theatrical representation uh, based uh, on this uh, on this graphic novel that was in turn based on that novel that we wrote all together with our readers, and it's called La Ballata del Corazzo. It was about uh, uh, the ecological danger represented by industrial pigsties. Um, uh, and, and this is just one of the examples I could make. But I think that uh, uh, the most inter interesting thing is to look at the official website of our latest novel, Manituana, because Manituana was born as a transmedia project, because th uh, there's the book that you can buy in bookstores or download uh, free of charge from our website. But then there are also, uh, for example, musicians, several musicians, for example, Italian uh, pop bands or uh, jazz uh, musicians or uh, folk uh, combos that uh, compose music inspired uh, by the novel and sent us the MP3s and we put them in this section of our website, which is called Suoni Sounds, and, and there's already a, a, a lot of contributions. And some of these contributions came from uh, the most important uh, uh, rock and pop bands uh, in Italy. Uh, uh, bands uh, that uh, at their concerts, at their gigs, draw crowds of 40,000 people, for example, like Subsonica, that uh, composed a song and uh, uh, gave it to us as a present. And their, their label, for Casa Sonica, even composed a whole soundtrack for the novel. Uh, it's with a completely no copyright uh, output, and we put it here. Then there's Visioni, Visions. Um, uh, these are pictures. Uh, for example, Le Lacrime del Diavolo, The Tears of the Devil, is a complete graphic novel made by one of our readers, uh, and it's a, a possible prologue uh, uh, to our novel. There's already a prologue in our novel, but this is a prologue to the prologue. And, 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 and it's a, a graphic novel. Uh, he sent it to us and we put it for down, download. Uh, 
uh, here, and, and, and not only graphic novels, of course, but also all kinds of images. For example, there's a woman in Ferrara, she made a doll, a rag doll, of one of the characters. She made it herself, handmade. Okay, uh, so there's all, all kinds of contribution, and this is level one, uh, but there's also level two, which is, which you can access only if you can prove that you already read the novel. <laughs> because of spoilers, of course, because there are conversations, conversations going on about uh, uh, the character uh, that dies, the character, uh, and uh, in order not to spoil their reading, they have to keep out, and only if they already read it, they, they, can, uh, they have to answer to a password. It's a, a riddle uh, hidden in the novel, and if they give the correct answer, they can access this. Level two. Level two has a behind the scenes sections. Um, these are the chapters of the book that we discarded. Uh, but mm, uh, we didn't discard them because we didn't like them, but only because uh, the, um, their presence uh, in the novel uh, was, was unnecessary. So they became, uh, they became side stories, and we published them here. But also, and I think the most interesting thing, uh, the most frequent uh, question that readers put uh, during book tours or uh, when we give talks, uh, the first question is always, how can you write a novel together? Uh, how does your collective uh, work uh, uh, work? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So we decided to record, uh, record some uh, meetings, <laughs> some uh, writing sections that we had, and uh, the most interesting once we put them here and people can listen to them. So they can have an idea of uh, the way we work. It's complete transparency, even too much transparency because uh, there's a, a part where Women 5 says, I just farted, please open the window. So, <laughs> <laughs> but we left it because I mean, it, 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 it's true. No. And, uh, and the readers can listen to this and, and uh, co uh, a comment upon okay this is this is me reading reading uh, uh, the first draft of a chapter then there's diramazioni diramazioni bifurcations when uh, mm, we publish uh, the fan fiction that contains spoilers uh, uh, so uh, we couldn't do it on level one we do it here. And there's a lot more of a fan fiction uh, that the readers uh, send to us. For example, Manituana un deragliamento balcanico, a Balkanic detour by this guy Marko Kralijevic, it's a Serbian name. Uh, it's a kind of a micro novel, a mini novel uh, uh, that uh, all of a sudden bifurcates from the uh, a chapter of, of Manituana and uh, the characters uh, end up uh, uh, in Europe, and they end up uh, in the Balkans. It's absurd, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of a mini novel of several chapters. Uh, yeah, like uh, yeah, branching off uh, of, of the novel. 
And there's uh, this guy, this poet, Rosano Astremo, uh, he, he is uh, trying to rewrite uh, Manituana as a um, collection of haikus, of uh, three verse poems in the Japanese uh, vogue, and uh, each chapter is a haiku. So it's, a, it's kind of an, it's impossible, it's an impossible task, but he's trying to do it. Then there's Mook Club Suite, un radio drama dal vivo, is a radio drama. A radio drama. It's an MP3, and you can listen uh, listen to it. Uh, uh, this is another spin-off, another piece of uh, fan fiction. Uh, one of the characters is Washington Irving, etc., etc., etc. And um, Manituana was published one year ago, and, and now the uh, the site is quite huge. There's there's a lot of stuff. Uh, in it, and this is an example, but it's not the the, the only example, of course, uh, because I, I could I, I could mention I could mention many works uh, uh, that were that were made by us uh, in collaboration with our our readers. And uh, but I think uh, um, a characteristic the, um, of the uh, new uh, Italian epic is that there are characters um, uh, invented by an author that uh, end up uh, in the novels of other authors. So collaboration is not only from the grassroots, uh, grassroots but it's also uh, uh, between authors. And so uh, there are some uh, characters or, or uh, uh, even uh, bits uh, of stories or of plots uh, that are common to uh, several, several books. And that's interesting. Uh, Giuseppe Genna says that uh, we could see all the novels of the new Italian epic as kind of a nostoy, the returns of the heroes from, the, uh, from Troy after the war. We, we only have the Odyssey now, uh, the return of Ulysses, but uh, um, uh, there, were, uh, there was a poem like that for any hero of the Iliad. Only uh, we lost all of them, and the only one that survived is the, is the Odyssey. The Odyssey is a nostos, which means return in, in Greek, and nostoi is the plural. So there were many nostoi, many returns, and each character uh, had a poem dedicated to him uh, with the vicissitudes, the adventures, uh, uh, while he was going home. And uh, uh, Giuseppe Genna says that uh, each uh, novel of the new Italian epic is a nostos, is part of, of one whole epic cycle uh, of books. Uh, and I think it's, uh, in a way, it's true. Um, so. I think one of them might be easy and one of them might be hard, but I don't know which is which. But um, okay. <laughs> So uh, uh, the first question is you were talking about how so many of, of the, these new Italian epics, um, they're not available in English. Um, I, and I was wondering if in like Manituana in particular, have you, has there been any move or is there even the possibility of fan translations? Yeah. Of that? We are negotiating translation with uh, Verso, a publisher uh, called Verso. And yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, they will do it. I, I, I was thinking um, it's a phenomenon that, that has been seen with other, with other books where the, the fans do translation that people, that mm -hmm. it, it's not worked out with the publisher. And I was curious, but um, is that, is Sorry? that, that um, 
that the, the same people who are, would be writing the fan fiction would uh -huh. do a translation that someone who spoke yeah or, or fan translations yeah mm -hmm. but it, it happens with the short stories but not okay. not with whole novels of course our novels are 600 700 pages long and as um it, it doesn't happen like that, but uh, the, uh, on our website you, you, you can find uh, some short stories uh, or other stuff, uh, shorter stuff, that was translated by fans uh, cool. from, from several countries. Awesome, I will check those out. Um, the, the other question then was, um, if I can get two in, was that you talked about um, uh, how important you, f you felt um, allegory was. Um, and it, I'm curious if you see any any tension between between allegory and the um, the the like transparent or open uh, nature of some of the, some of the online work. If if there's uh, allegory tends to be idea like it's shrouded or it's a personal that it's a metaphor that couldn't be gotten through. Is mm -hmm. that is that the wrong model to use? Or? No, I think, I think that uh, the fact, for example, the multitudinous nature of these novels, they usually are about the destinies of communities, of uh, many individual destinies uh, crossing each other, many characters uh, collaborating with each other for, for a common goal. And so this multitudinous and multifarious uh, nature of the novels, in a way, is an allegory of uh, participation itself on, on the part of the readers. I mean, they find themselves in the stories, and that's a, a, another uh, input um, to participate. I mean, uh, uh, that's one of the deeper layers of allegory that I'm trying to look at. Uh, the fact that these novels are collective in what they show, in what they tell, in what they depict, uh, in a way, is uh, uh, stimulating uh, for uh, the other multitude, the, the one that exists outside of the book, the multitude of, of readers. They feel themselves uh, fascinated. They, they see themselves, themselves reflected in that multitude. And so they participate because uh, it's, it's like uh, yeah, making worlds, creating a world altogether. You and the characters. Um, how do you deal with issues of canon? Of canon? Canon. Like if you have like three different stories that all tell the story of how a, a set, the same character dies in different ways. Mm, the same? Uh, I, I'm not sure I, I, I understood the question. If you have three um, pieces of fan fiction on your ah, site okay. yeah, okay. and all three of them describe uh, the same character that dies in three different ways. Yeah, There's obviously a conflict okay. there, but do you worry about that? Uh, continuity is not necessary. Fair enough. Thank you. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about the experience of Wuming collaborating with uh, Guido Chiesa? Chiesa. Ah. In for How can you possibly know about that? Well, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Luciano Capelli. Uh -huh. was part of Radio Alice. Yeah. He was my mentor and boss in Costa Rica. It's a small world. <laughs> <laughs> so I, just, I was just chatting with him a little while ago, and I said, you must know these people. 
then I sa saw that you had actually collaborated in the movie. With, mm. And I felt, and I already felt like there was a continuity, but I would like it for you to tell us a bit about that. Yeah, okay. Um, in, um, <laughs> in 2002, 2003, we, we wrote uh, a screenplay for a movie uh, that was later um, uh, distributed in 2004 and uh, was also awarded at the Venice Festival, at 2004 Ven Venice Festival. It's called Lavorare con lentezza, which means work slowly. Uh, it's the title of a um, 1970s protest song uh, against work uh, and 1971 song uh, from an Italian folk singer. And um, this movie uh, was directed by Guido Chiesa. He's a, he's a director. He also was um, uh, um, assistant to Spike Lee and uh, Jim Jarmusch when he, when he lived in New York. Then he, he went back to Italy and became a director in his own right. And um, uh, the, the movie is about the 1977 student movement in Italy. Um, and the focus is on a, a community radio that was called Radio Alice, Radio Alice, in Bologna, that was uh, uh, closed down by, by the police uh, in March 1977, um, because... Uh, um, in, in, a few days, a few days before, at the beginning of March 1977, uh, there was a student riot uh, in the campus in the University District of Bologna, and the police shot down a 25-year-old uh, leftist student. And uh, then riots uh, flared up uh, all over town, and uh, windows were broken, and uh, police vans were were set to flames, uh, and uh, uh, there were. There was armed, even armed confrontation uh, uh, between uh, police uh, and, uh, and uh, activists, police and students uh, all over Bologna. And Radio Alice was charged with uh, uh, directing the rioters, um, uh, telling them where the police was, uh, from which direction the police was coming, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, Radio Alice was an incredibly creative uh, uh, community radio, it was completely open to participation and any phone call was broadcast live, anyone. Uh, even uh, if, uh, maybe you were doing your show and your mother called uh, to know uh, the time uh, you were supposed to be home and you put, them, you put her live and everybody could hear your conversation between you and your mother. It was completely, completely open. It was uh, talk radio taken to the extreme. Um, and uh, um, it, was, uh, it was a turning point in, the, in, in Italian culture uh, because until 1975 uh, there was a monopoly, a state monopoly of radio frequencies. Uh, the, uh, the only radio that existed was the national state radio, which of course was heavily controlled by politicians, and there were no community radios. Uh, then there was a, a sentence uh, from the Italian Supreme Court, uh, la Corte Costituzionale, that uh, stated that such monopoly was unconstitutional because it was against free speech. And then 
dozens, even hundreds of community radios uh, were born in uh, several cities. And I think that th the most interesting one was Radio Ellis. Uh, in Bologna. We um, wrote a screenplay on the history of, uh, it's a feature film, not a documentary, it's a feature film, it's fiction. It's a semi-fictionalized account of uh, the story of uh, Radio Lice. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the, the film was quite successful um, and uh, was, uh, was screened at several festivals uh, in Europe. And uh, it became a, a sort of a cult because uh, they keep screening it in uh, squats, uh, social centers, uh, uh, cultural circles uh, all over Italy. And uh, uh, as far as narrative complexity is concerned, uh, Lavorare con Lentezza is uh, uh, fully in the context of uh, the new uh, Italian epic. Uh, all, uh, almost all the characteristics, all the features that I listed are present in, uh, in the movie. I think that uh, you can find uh, uh, copies, uh, you can find the torrent files, and, uh, or if you use Emule or eDonkey, you, uh, you can find uh, copies of, of the movie uh, with uh, uh, English subtitles because uh, um, the copy that was screened at the Festival of Political Cinema in Barcelona then went uh, online, uh, some, some people put, uh, put it online, and so I think you, you, you can find it with English uh, subtitle if you, if you want to see it. Uh, uh, the English is quite clumsy, it wasn't me who uh, translated for the subtitle, uh, I, I don't know who did it, uh, sometimes it, it's a little bit clumsy but you can understand anything anyway. Of people, how, how much do you accept, okay. and what was it based on? Is based on you? Is based on? Is it like uh, well, Radio it, 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 or some other thing? It depends on the contribution. It, it, it depends on the project, and it depends on the contribution. Uh, there were some uh, project of uh, collective uh, writing uh, that uh, had a, a real editorial staff which was formed by us and, and other people. And there, and there were other, in, uh, where uh, th there was no such uh, control. And for example, here in Manituana, uh, the, the only selection is by quality. If, uh, they, if we decide that the contribution sucks, we exp uh, kindly explain to the, that, uh, because sometimes uh, we received the stuff by people that were almost illiterate. Uh, so, uh, it, it was very boring stuff, and so we, uh, or, or for example, uh, a guy uh, composed and recorded a song that was terrible, absolutely terrible, and, and we wrote back, uh, uh, we are sorry, but uh, this stuff sucks, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> try to, uh, uh, try to work on it, uh, so and and sometimes they worked on it, uh, and the result was better, and uh, we put we put them online, but not the song. The song is still sucks, still sucks. <laughs> so there's a quality selection, arbitrary, of course. It depends on our taste, but since we are running the game, we decide. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but it's clear from the beginning. I mean, it's clear from the beginning. It's transparent. It's transparent. We say we will put uh, we'll put on our website the stuff that we decide that it's worth 
but it, it's very rare that uh, uh, the stuff that they send us is, 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 is bad. It's, it's rare. It happened, yeah, twice, probably. Yeah, and uh, all, all the rest is, is quite good, uh, or, or at least decent. Uh, so so it's, it's, it, it seldom happens that we have to intervene in this way. So, but it's clear from the beginning. I mean, you know, even the people that sent us stuff say, uh, do, do what you want with it. If you don't want to publish, uh, it's no problem for me. Uh. Hi, I'm Kevin. Um, I'm curious about this moment of suicide from which Wu Ming was born. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I wonder how permanent any suicide can be with a collective open-ended identity like yeah. the Luther Blissett. That's a good question, because there was two levels, actually. Uh, there was the Luther Blissett, uh, and that name still exists, and it's, it's still adopted on the Internet or in, in other countries. Uh, for example, uh, that prank uh, um, uh, about spoiling Harry Potter, you remember, uh, it was uh, one month before the publication of uh, The Deathly Hallows, and, and, and the responsibility was claimed by, by a group that uh, used the, the Luther Blissett name. Okay. Uh, so uh, people are free to, to use the name. It was the veterans of, of the Luther Blissett project that decided to uh, uh, do something else. Uh, because the Luther Blissett project was a more tight-knit, a more organized uh, network within the vast network. The Luther Blissett project, for example, the, Bo the Bologna-based group, uh, the Roman group, uh, and a few other people uh, coordinating uh, work uh, and organizing hoaxes and pranks together. But we were, there were more people, more and more people, uh, using the name in Italy and other countries. And, and uh, we had a description for the Luther Blissett project, and, and it was, we are the only central committee whose purpose is to lose control of the party. <laughs> yeah. It's the contrary of Stalinism, you know, it's, it's the opposite. Uh, and uh, the five-year plan was the five-year plan of the Luther Blissett project, not of the general adoption of the name. I so see. if you want to use the name, you, you, you can do it. Uh, you, you don't have to tell anybody that, you, that you're going to do it. Uh, it it's, it's completely free. But uh, the, the people who'd been using the name since 1994, uh, put an end to the project. It was the end of uh, those five uh, years and uh, started to do something else. Cool. Hi. Um, just by way of preface, uh, one of the things that frustrates me a lot about contemporary literature and why I'm studying this kind of stuff and not literature is that I feel like there's a, a kind of... Um, a lot of contemporary authors are oblivious to the fact that they're using the book as a medium. Sorry, uh, speak, speak slower. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, I feel like a lot of contemporary authors are oblivious to the fact that they're using the book as a medium. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you mentioned some just really interesting examples that's going on in Italy in the last 10 years or so. And I was wondering if you see anything outside of Italy going on that's similar, to, similar in that they're... Uh, using the book in new ways, uh, seeing narrative as not as part of a closed book, but part of as a more open network? I think it's more frequent in nonfiction than in fiction. Uh, uh, we mentioned uh, Mackenzie's work. Uh, the, the kind of work that he's doing with the theoretical texts, 
is, is quite interesting. It's fascinating in a way. Because, for example, uh, his uh, latest book uh, uh, on gamer culture uh, wasn't born as a book in book form. but was born as a virtual deck of cards that was uh, put online. And each card was a bit of text, uh, part of the context of a chapter. Every chapter was associated to a concept, a notion, for example, for example algorithm. And uh, each card of the deck uh, could be seen as a blog post. And anybody could append comments. Uh, and uh, all this text was used in order to write the, the, the book, the proper book. And, and that was very interesting, because uh, I think that several ideas that are in the book were not in the deck of cards, because um, the comments uh, were inspiring. And, so, and, and, and I think that this kind of stuff uh, um, happens more in the non-fiction realm than, than in fiction. While in Italy, it happens a lot more with, with fiction, while uh, non-fiction has to disguise itself as fiction in order to be interesting, like in the case of Gomorra, which I mentioned, etc. Hi. First, just to let you know, that was my song. Sorry? That was my song. Your song? I'm kidding. It was like, I'm no, saying okay. that was my no, song no, no, that no. I sent yeah. in. We didn't receive songs from the US because nobody read the, the novel. I, so. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but I wanted to know if there was, if you think that there is a thread of continuity between the political movements in the late 60s and the 70s, like the Red Brigades, and then the movements in the 80s. I know it was small, but still important. And then in the 80s and the 90s, the movement, like I had a friend who he said he was in the political movement in Rome, but he didn't give it any name. Uh -huh. And I'm just wondering if this um, artistic social movement has any continuity between with those. Okay. Does it make oh, sense? Uh, wait, there's no affinity with the Red Brigades because the Red Brigades were an authoritarian secret group uh, with a heavily Stalinist and violent ideology, and they were not open to any kind of uh, participation or stuff like that. They were just murderers. So there's no affinity with the Red Brigades. But uh, of course, there's a continuity, um, for example, with the 1977 movement, which I just uh, talked about. And um, at the beginning of this decade, decade uh, after the so-called uh, Battle of Seattle in, uh, in uh, 30, November 30, uh, 1999, uh, a global movement started. And uh, Italy was, uh, was full of uh, groups, uh, uh, networks, uh, community radio, com community TV stations, and websites, and uh, all, all kinds of activities um, uh, until we ended up in, in the trap in Genoa uh, uh, when the, we went there to protest against the G8 meeting, and we were beaten to bloody pulp by the police, and one of us was murdered by, by the police. Of course, uh, uh, this kind of fiction that I described uh, is, uh, comes from the 
the, the same places uh, that, 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 those move, that movement. Uh, uh, also because Italy is not such a big country and so it, it's, it's normal that all the scenes are in touch with each other and uh, influence each other. And uh, I think that uh, most of the authors that I mentioned were in Genoa the day that Carlo Giuliani was killed by the police. They were in the street, uh, which doesn't mean that their books are political propaganda, of course, because there's still a difference between being a writer and, 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 and being a, an, an agit prop propagandist. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, there's, a, there's a relationship between all that's... Uh, uh, all that's been uh, uh, coming from Italy uh, in, 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 in the past uh, 40 years, yeah, there's a continuity of that kind. Not with the Red Brigades. The Red Brigades were a degeneration. With a degeneration. Uh, I wouldn't recommend anyone to be like the Red Brigades, really. Okay, I'm Ram Ting. I'm from China. I have read a lot of uh, ancient uh, poems uh, written by Wu Ming. So uh, yes. you are very famous <laughs> in <course>. China. <laughs> yeah. We have a can, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I know you have a very deep and uh, intensive uh, understanding of uh, Wu Ming. Uh, I just want to know uh, uh, did you find uh, found any uh, differences as a Wu Ming identity uh, uh, from the uh, book readers and the, the uh, online readers? So, uh, did you uh, reposition uh, your uh, leaders? No, we don't position ourselves as leaders. No, we are leaders of uh, of, of no nobody and nothing. Uh, uh, no, we we just uh, we're storytellers. Uh, we're, we're not leaders. Uh, we don't give orders to to anyone. Uh, so no, we 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 actually never used that word to describe mm. ourselves. No, never, never. It, it never even occurred uh, to to me to call to call myself like that. No, really, it's uh, it's strange. It's strange. I'll th I'll think over it because it's uh, it's quite strange uh, to to be called like that. So I have very, I think, a practical problem, uh, and I wonder the copyright problem. Mm -hmm. Who has the copyright of the novels? Uh, in foundation or any one of them? And do you think it's a kind of new business model, or you, you just oh, prefer no, okay. to understand it as a... Everything uh, that's online is completely free of charge. Uh, for example, our novel Q is downloaded uh, uh, 5,000 times a year. Uh, so everything that's online is completely free, uh, whether we wrote it or readers wrote it, uh, it's completely, completely free. Uh, we don't make a living out of our online activity. Uh, we make a living out of selling objects, yeah. these objects. And we make a living out of royalties, a percentage of the, of the cover price of this. But download is completely free and everything else is completely free. So uh, we are not, uh, uh, this is not a model, uh, business model. This is not a business model. This is a business model. Yeah. I mean, this one. 
sorry. Um, I may be mistaken about this, but there does seem to me to be a difference between Luther Blissett and Wu Ming uh, in that there was more provocation, humor, um, uh, sort of dispersal, performative aspects perhaps um, to Luther Blissett, and it was about dissemination, you know, right? This feels, I, I wouldn't go, I understand your rejection of the notion of leadership, but it feels a little more orchestrated or centralized, the wooming yeah. activities. And I'm trying to make distinctions in my mind between the notion of the crowd, the multitudinous, that I, I, I do agree, I thought of that, but having all that multiplicity in your books then invites that kind of participation. So I'm thinking, okay, this is a crowd model of activity. It's an urban model. But isn't there some difference between collective and participatory, which feels to me more like what your website is encouraging and your relationship with your fans? And I just wonder if you could talk about, one, the transition between some of the Luther Blissett activities and the Wu Ming ones, and is there a difference to be understood between this idea of the, the crowd and the multitudinous or the collective intelligence? That's an excellent question. Uh, I will begin uh, by making a distinction. Uh, Wu Ming is a band of five people, like the Rolling Stones, for example. Wu Ming is a band, while uh, Luther Blissett was uh, a nebula, uh, it was a an indiscriminately open network of people who didn't even know each other because everybody could use the name. So we were usually taken by surprise uh, by the, the usage of the name uh, because we had no control over it, because there was no possible control, because the poetics of the project uh, uh, were about not controlling it. Uh, and so, for example, in southern Italy, uh, uh, some, some people uh, started to steal from churches statues of uh, the Holy Child, of baby Jesus. Uh, and uh, they sent uh, ransom letters to the Catholic Church saying that they had to pay a ransom of 100 million lire, which is uh, more or less uh, $70,000, to the poor uh, people uh, and the homeless of uh, uh, a Calabrian town. And otherwise, uh, the statues of the Holy Child will be destroyed. So, and uh, these letters were signed Luther Blissett. And uh, the newspapers uh, covered uh, these, uh, these kidnappings, uh, attributing them to Luther Blissett, but we didn't know ab absolutely anything ab about it. And uh, we inferred, uh, we assumed that in, they were readers of Q, that uh, they went a little bit too far. I mean, um, they, they, they read Q and uh, they soaked up uh, that kind of iconoclastic attitude, and so they went out stealing statues from churches. And that's fun fiction, too, in a way. Uh, that's storytelling, too. But uh, we didn't know anything about that because uh, anybody could take the name Luther Blissett and use it uh, the way they wanted. Uh, but uh, uh, after, uh, after the end of the Luther Blissett project, we started a, co a project that is essentially different because we are a band. We are a laboratory. We are, uh, I don't know, like the um, 
like the Bauhaus or uh, you know uh, a collective uh, a factory a little factory of production an atelier using the French word of narrative services in a way we have inherited from Luther Blissett a certain openness and uh, a community feeling and so we uh, interact with our readers and we start projects with them uh, but uh, we are a band so you can um, you can uh, do whatever whatever you want uh, with with your readers uh, and uh, Sometimes uh, even you can write books with them, but there's a difference between those books and the project that uh, the project that we work on, the narrative projects, whose writing lasts many years and involves uh, years of historical uh, painstaking research. And so, so we have to be organized in order to uh, work on on the books that we want to write. We usually. Uh, decided to write books that we would like to we would like to read, but nobody else is writing, um, so we feel very involved uh, in them, and uh, we work hard. I mean, uh, three three years, three years and a half. You have to be organized. You have to be almost a Leninist <laughs> in order to do that, uh, because it involves uh, going to archives that usually are in. Uh, far away towns, uh, you have to read, uh, for example, uh, uh, hundreds of microfilms of newspapers published in 1954. So uh, we, uh, we need to be organized in order to do that, which doesn't mean that we're not open, because in, for other specific projects, uh, we ha are open to uh, participation, to co-creation, to collaboration, etc. And we are open in, a, in another uh, meaning of, of the word, because we answer to every email we receive, which are at least 100 every day, and we uh, keep uh, a relationship, we keep in touch with the community of our readers, and we try our best to keep in touch with them and not to isolate ourselves. Uh, and uh, uh, this makes possible this kind of work, because we don't feel lonely, we don't feel isolated, we don't feel like living in an ivory tower, so we can be organized and do that kind of work, because we are open in many, as many other aspects. So, but it's the essentially different from the Luther Bishop. It's like more like the uh, passage uh, from Dada to surrealism. You know. Thank you so much. It's okay. Great Thank you for having me.